welcome you legends to your next episode and today I have remastered two old time radio shows for your lovely selves. One from Escape, a new series that is heavily damaged which has warranted a significant amount of repair by yours truly about a boy, his conjuncture with reality, the way in which his uncle handles bad news to say the least and his father. This one might be a tearjerker, lads and lasses. And your second old-time radio is from crime classics Edmund Thrower, a maker of the weapons of thievery and the creator of tools of thuggery. Listeners, strap yourselves in from audio remastered from over 80 years ago. Turn the sound up and get comfy, and let's enjoy some old-time radio stories. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland. I'm going to tell you another true crime story. Listen. In the county of Suffolk, the willow grows green, and there was once a smithy. His name was Edmund Thrower. He was a powerful man who could make the anvil shudder and spring sparks into shadows cast by the willow. He made horseshoes, he mended scullery ware, he made hammers, to drive nails, to mend shoes, to bludgeon people to death. And tonight, my report to you on the dread event surrounding Mr. Thrower's Hammer. <laughs> Crime Classics, a series of true crime stories taken from the records and newspapers of every land from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, teller of murders. Now, once again, Thomas Highland. I should like to pose a conundrum. Of course, I already know its answer, but it took history 11 years to solve it. But was this puzzle solved? Well, perhaps. It has some interesting ingredients. A man hung for stealing a heifer, a gypsy, a chap who cut ling for a living, a young woman dead across a gooseberry bush, and the mending of a shoe on a wet day. Now, was ever a puzzle so tweaking? It happened in 1793, and there are two versions as to how it started. Version 1. Scene, Shotford Heath in Waybread, Suffolk, and a man is driving sheep to town. Oh, no, enough of cud, beastie. On to town with it, come on. Oh! Oh! Ah. Rest your flock a while, shepherd. <laughs> We've some ruby red wine. Hey. Wine would be clever. <laughs> Tilt the skin for him, Gypsy. Give the shepherd a drink. Aye. <clears throat> ah, very clever. And ruby red. Uh, to whom be I beholden? I be Gypsy Dick. I am John Head. Ah, thank ye, thank ye. I be Edmund Thrower. They call me friend here, Gypsy. Because he does things gypsy-like. He touches the winds and says, Who will die in the next town? 
He looks at the hand of a man and tells whatever. It's true, Tipsy Dick will show you. Oh, I, I have no money. No silver from the palm of a shepherd. Give me your hand. Willow, willow, shining dim, hang down your little catechin. Well? John Head, do you see what I see in the shepherd's palm? Look here. Ten pounds in golden coins for the future. Then it shall be. <laughs> there, shepherd thrower. Ten pounds in your palm, <laughs> like the gypsy said. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> uh, gypsy. Aye. What else do you see? Before you covered his palm with gold, I saw the shepherd waiting here while we went into yon house. For ten pounds? That be all you want me to do? Aye, and give the alarm if you see anyone coming. You'll be thieves. Especially if you see a constable coming, give the alarm. And the ten pound be mine? Indeed. Oh, I will scream my lungs out if anyone approach. Uh, I could see it in your palm. Come, John Head. Aye. The last there, leaning over the gooseberry bush. The hammer, John Head. Aye. Quietly. Quietly. Aye. <coughs> oh, our dear old daddy would grieve if he found his daughter so. Look, through the window, her father sleeps in a chair. Quietly. Quietly. Aye. A father and his daughter were just bludgeoned to death. Their names? Thomas and Elizabeth Carter. They owned a small house on the outskirts of the village of Cratfield in Suffolk and they kept a small shop of tasties and oddments. In the evenings, they had often been seen walking in the garden, now stopping to sniff a rose, now pausing to pluck marigold, now lifting their cheeks to the setting sun. That they were murdered, there is no doubt. As to the manner in which they were murdered, you have just looked in on version one. Now for version two. Scene, a rainy day in the town of Swatham, a ling cutter, that is, one devoted to hewing common heather, sits at his stall and mends his shoe. Watch oh, it be wet outside. Uh, and foul. The ling likes the damp, but keeps its color. And fine-looking ling it be, John Head. I'll fill your arms with it, Thrower, if you'll give me a moment to fix this shoe. Uh, Pox on this hammer. Well, listen, John Head. Fix the sole of your shoe, but do not sell me ling. I look for lodgings. For the night or for the while? Oh, ruddy hammer. Yeah, you'll be using broken hammer to mend shoe. Tis the only hammer I have. Uh, 
I will make you a trade, John Head. How? I have a hammer here in my kit. Ah, this hammer. Oh, tis a hammer indeed. A trade. The hammer for the lodging. A trade. And it be a special hammer. You know it? Special? Aye. With the same hammer, I beat in the head of one Mr. Carter. And his daughter, too. Oh, <laughs> and that would make it a special hammer indeed. Ah, they were poke noses. <laughs> what? Mr. Carter and his daughter, they poked their long noses into what did not concern them. Aye, and for that you hammered them, eh? For that indeed. You will notice I am not with my wife. The Mr. Carter and his daughter spoke to my wife and told her to go off with someone else, and my wife did. <laughs> Tis a real cruelty. <laughs> Will you want the same room, Mr. Thrower? The two versions of how the Carters, father and daughter, met their respective ends. Version 1, Gypsy Dick and John Head did it. Version 2, Edmund Thrower did it. In any event, the Carters were discovered the next morning lifeless. And, as we well know in these times, the things that were raised were hues and cries. Also, there was much scurrying and running about and clamor. But all this fell upon the stillness of the Suffolk Heath. There were seasons and rainy days and days of sunshine and heather and the ling cutters came and went, and the sheep became coats and mutton, and a certain gooseberry bush bloomed lovely, and berries died unpicked. And somewhere far away, a gypsy with the unlikely name of Dick held a palm and said this, Willow, willow, shining dim, hang down your little catechin, and picked a pocket. There were seasons and there were years, eleven years, Mr. Thrower was now a blacksmith among the willows. Mr. John Head was now a convict among the vermin and the lice of Ipswich Jail. Mr. Head had committed a felony. He had robbed a sailor. His sentence hadn't been passed yet, but his cellmates had. John Head. Eh, uh, what is it, Saunders? I can't sleep. Uh, you'll sleep for long in a few hours. They say that on the gallows sleep is slow to come, that it's painful. Unless you have a friend, a friend to hold down your legs, then death is quick. <laughs> if they will let me, I will do it for you, Saunders. Oh, thank you. Seems to me... What? Cruel. Death. What I did was cruel. To steal a heifer is cruel and deserves death. I knew it when I stole it. And you'll die, too. You stole a heifer. I but robbed a sailor. My brother robbed a sailor. He was hung and he was given to the surgeons. You'll die. Ah, uh, tis odd. Uh, what? Once before there was a time like this. Once before they would hang me. Why? Long ago. Ten years or so, eleven. They, they took me from a public house where I lay drunk. 
and told me I'd killed a man, a man and his daughter, that I'd knocked their heads in with a hammer. About eleven years ago? Ah, uh, but then I was let free. They decided I didn't do it. And where was this? In Pratfield in Suffolk. I and the name of the man and the name of the daughter? Oh, I can't remember. Nor I. Carter! Carter? T'was the name. How did you know? Carter, Carter, Carter! Saunders, lad. What? If they will let me do it, I will hold down your legs and pull hard on them, and you will die quick. Thank you, thank you. And something else, Saunders, lad. The gibbet here at Ipswich will not get me for a long time yet. <laughs> I don't die, not soon, Saunders, <laughs> lad. Straw is a useful commodity. Under various conditions, it is used for sleeping upon, for making bricks, for making hats, handbags, baskets, and in single units, it is excellent for breaking a camel's back. Straw is also used to clutch. It was this latter proclivity that John Head utilized. A straw. A chance to get out of there. So, this is what he did. Jailer! Jailer! He yelled. He banged on bars. Jailer! Jailer! He yelled some more. He got the jailer's attention. I know a murder that's being committed. And I'll tell you all about it. Their names were Thomas and Elizabeth Carter. And he was led to the warden. And they was father and daughter, Your Honor Warden. And their heads was bashed in. And John Head was then led to Mr. Oldershaw, a magistrate. It was eleven years ago, sir, in Cratfield in Suffolk. Why have you waited this long to say anything of it? I was just reminded of it. By whom? By a laddie whom you will hang this evening. His name is Saunders. I shared his cell. And his gibbet, too, if this be a story for cocks and bulls. Brute, I tell you, I know the murderer. The true murderer. Who is he? A man named Edmund Thrower. He himself told me of the killings. He even wished to give me the hammer with which he killed. I thought the story was a joke. But now I know it was not. And I remember. Very well. Tell me about this Edmund Thrower and the murder of a father and a daughter. It was like this, Your Worship. It was a rainy day, and I had me a little shop. What kind of a shop? Ling. And I was sitting there mending a shoe with a broken hammer. And John Head proceeded to tell the magistrate version two of the double murder. You remember the one where Thrower offered Head a hammer, the very one he confessed with which he had committed the crime? The result of John Head's story, he was not hanged, and a search was begun for Edmund Thrower. <laughs> now that's really making the most out of straws, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you.
You are listening to Crime Classics and your host, Thomas Hyland. I guess we can all relax now. Since Arthur Godfrey told the nation he was going away for some surgery, the phone operators have been busy trying to answer the questions about when he'll be back. Things are normal now, though. It's August, and Arthur's back on his Monday through Friday daytime show and on the Talent Scouts Monday evenings. Most of these same CBS radio stations bring you Godfrey, so be listening for him next time round. And now once again, Thomas Hyland in the second act of Crime Classics and his report to you on Mr. Thrower's Hammer. England in 1804. It was a peaceful time for England. They didn't have the colonies to worry about anymore. And on the boards of the theaters, a play called Heels Up was all the raids. Also, the towns were getting accustomed to the sight of red Indians from America walking the streets. And it was the year when Lady Gwen Fitzmoru rode to hounds one day and showed up a week later in Paris, thereby rocking the world from the Bay of Bundy to the Mediterranean. Two, it was during the reign of King George, and for the most part, except for losing the colonies, George's reign was acceptable. Generally speaking, a pleasant time in England. In Suffolk now, however, there was a stir. Something about a double murder committed eleven years before. Memories and records were tapped, and sure enough, on a spring day in the year of 1793, Mr. Thomas Carter and his daughter Elizabeth had been hammered to death, one in his chair, the other over a gooseberry bush. The most fruitful tapping of memory was John Heads, who remembered that it was Edmund Thrower who did it, but Mr. Thrower was nowhere to be found. <laughs> Observe now a coincidence of history. Another tankard of ale, Mr. Fox. Oh, thank you, Oldershaw, no. Just this pipe and to relax. A drink away if you like it, though. Don't mind me. No, 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 enough for me to. Uh, pass me the taper. Hmm? Uh, aye, here. It's good tobacco you brought from London town. What kind is it? Uh, Virginia. Equally fine in the pipe or the nose. I'll send you a packet. Aye, and, and thanks to you. Uh, your business accomplished in Ipswich, Mr. Fox? Aye, a matter of a legacy. Mm, some lucky people have legacies. Would that you would deliver me one. <laughs> and what would you do, old as you? Uh, take a frigate to America. You've been to America, have you not, Mr. Fox? <laughs> Aye. Is it true about Kentucky, Mr. Fox? I would not know. I never got out of Virginia. As a matter of fact, though, the woman to whom I delivered the legacy plans to go to America, too. Uh, uh, Mrs. Thrower. Thrower, did you say? Aye, uh, uh, Mrs. Edmund Thrower. And where in Ipswich did you find her? In a cardboard house on Pretty Prentice Lane. She is a, a gatherer and a seller of kindling wood. It took me a year to find her. And I've been looking for her husband for six months now. Her husband? Why? For two murders. I am quite sure that Mrs. Thrower knows where her husband is. Oh? Uh, this legacy I brought to her, the papers had to be signed by both her and her husband. Uh, she took the papers from me and brought them back a few days later and signed by Edmund Thrower. Pretty Prentice Lane. A cardboard house. And on the door it says, kindling for sale. Uh, well, shall we enjoy one more tankard, Mr. Oldershaw? Oh, surely you're not going to Pretty Prentice Lane at this hour. I... 
good night, old Jean. I'm of the police. What you want? Are you Mrs. Edmund Thrower? I be. Where's your husband? What you wanted now for? There's a crime I was told he did. Cool. A terrible crime. Of what manner? Murder. To whom? A Mr. Thomas Carter and... Elizabeth! That's right. Oh. oh. What's the matter? <laughs> oh, such a sweet family. The man and his daughter. Ah, well, I remember them. And Edmund it was who killed him. With well, a hammer, tis said. Ah, a brutal way. For such gentle people, that is. You knew them well? Oh, Elizabeth would fill me apron with gooseberries. And oft she'd tell me of my husband. Oh? What a terrible man he was. How I should leave him. Why? He was a tweaker and a scoundrel. With other women, you mean? Aye. With Elizabeth? Under her own dad's nose. Did you believe her? I saw with me own eyes. Mr. Carter and myself, we hid and we watched. And one day Edmund drove his sheep by and stopped into the house of the Carters. Oh, he was a tweaker. I left him. Did he try to find you to bring you back? He told all of Suffolk how he wanted me back. How he missed me. And me tripe pudding. And the sweetness I was. And he found me. But I likes my freedom. I said... I said... What? Edmund, tweaker, I likes my freedom. And it's plain to see you know what to do with yours. So let's keep it that way. Mister... You know what he did? What? He blew into his fist and slammed it down onto the table and swore he'd get even. Where can I find him? He's a smithy now, you know. No, I did not. Over in Carbrook. There's a line of willers. You'll find Edmund there, smithying. <laughs> you know what? He didn't tell me nothing about putting the hammer to them nice people. Edmund Thrower? Yes? I am a magistrate of the law. You will come with me. Magistrate, how do you fare in yourself? Mm -hmm. Tolerably, sir. I'll listen to your story now, Thrower. Yes, sir. I am a smithy, and I have been a smithy for the past year now. And before... I don't know of the murder of the Carters, of why I have explained to you that you are here. Yeah. Very happy to. I can remember everything. Good, good. 
In uh, March 1792, I was discharged from the Navy and went to work for Mr. Potter at Stradbrook in helping him to fetch and carry sheep about. Till when? Oh, till Michaelmas 1793. Sometime after March 1793, as I was going over Shotford's Heath in Weybert's Suffolk, I was overtaken by a man called John Head and one called Gypsy Dick. One of them had a skin ruby red wine. And so it was that Edmund Thrower told version number one. This is the version wherein John Head and Gypsy Dick were supposed to have committed that double murder. And so we come now to the final playing out of the conundrum I posed for you a while ago, and whose elements have been displayed for you. Jurisprudence now and the English law. Edmund Thrower was brought to trial. I have a copy here of the original indictment, and I'd like to read it to you. Edmund Thrower, 58 years of age, not having the fear of God before his eyes, but instigated by the devil, feloniously, willfully, maliciously, and with malice aforethought, made an assault on Elizabeth Carter at Cratfield in the county of Suffolk on the 16th day of October in the 33rd year of the present reign, in and upon the body of the said Elizabeth Carter, and with a certain hammer, then and therewith, did strike the said Elizabeth diverse mortal wounds upon the head, of which he died, against the statute and against the king's peace. At this trial, Magistrate Oldershaw presided. Edmund Thrower, how do you plead? Not guilty. Then a second indictment was read concerning the murder of Thomas, father of Elizabeth Carter. Edmund Thrower, how do you plead? Not guilty. Then, from almost nowhere, a man who went by the name of Gypsy Dick was sworn and took the stand and made a statement. He told where he lived. At Cutfield. And did he recollect the murder? Oh, yes. I was walking Shortford Heath on the morning of the murder. It was about nine o'clock when my attention was excited. I heard a sharp woman's shriek, and I said to myself, I have heard a woman's shriek. I was enough to stun anybody. And more? I saw a man running, or walking quick, when I got to the four crossways from Cotter's house, and I made a kind of halt when he was before me. He went over a stile on the left hand of Crutfield Green, and it was a very bright morning, and I could see the man well. And it was that man sitting over there, who is called Edmund Thrower. So the case was given to the jury who deliberated 35 minutes. Guilty. And sentence was passed. Edmund Thrower, you have been tried and convicted by an impartial jury of your country of a most foul and cruel murder. A murder on an inoffensive poor girl who gave you no provocation and of her aged father, too, in the moments of quietude. The motives which led to that murder are best known to God and your own conscience. Therefore, it behooves you to make your peace with him, before whose awful tribunal you must appear. You will be removed from hence to the place from whence you came, and from thence to a place of execution on Monday next, where you will be hanged by the neck until you are dead and your body afterwards will be delivered to the surgeons, and the Lord Almighty receive your soul.
It took history 11 years to solve the puzzle, but was it solved? As a student of crime, I'm not sure, nor should you be. But one thing is certain, in the county of Suffolk, the willow grows green, and from one of them, there hung a smithy. just a moment, Thomas Highland will tell you about next week's crime classic. Mr. Thrower's Hammer, tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. In tonight's story, William Johnstone was heard as Mr. Thrower. Featured in the cast were Eric Snowden, Jay Novello, Joseph Kearns, Paula Winslow, Tudor Owen and Alastair Duncan. Bob Lamont speaking. Here again is Thomas Highland. Next week, a certain house in the Heidelberg Township in Pennsylvania. Since 1795, the tenants of that house have been unable to remove the blood from the floorboards. My report to you will be on the Axe and the Drute family, how they fared. Thank you. Good night. In the wide open spaces east of Hollywood, some people forget that there's a university where men actually study in Hollywood. The hills were alive with color. From every slope, tapestries of gold and amber, fiery red and waning greens were bathed in the reflected glory of the setting autumn sun. Old Hank Morton leaned on the sprawling pile of rounded rocks that had once formed a boundary line between his land and that of his neighbor, James Evans. The day was almost over, and the slanting rays of sunlight caught the gray and brown stubble on his face with their glistening light. Old Hank was thinking, and anyone could have told that he didn't much relish his late afternoon thoughts. Hank's face was a barometer for his mind. Today, he was worried. Worried as he sensed the end of summer, thinking, well, it ain't right, that's all. Just don't seem to be right. Of course, I suppose I'm being selfish and all that. But when a man's done all he could, and done pretty well according to most standards... I figure he ought to be able to have some say in a matter as important as this is. Like a man's own flesh and blood was being taken from him, and it doesn't... Oh, do I? Oh, do I? Yes, what? Just yes. <laughs> Here, now, hold on there, young and Now, hold on. Dick Mason's daddy is back home from war. He's come back for good. Well, now, that must make Dick feel pretty good, huh? Yeah. He was at school today. Dick's father, I mean. Uh-huh. And he talked to us in assembly. It was awfully exciting. All about... Well, was he all right? Er, not hurt, I mean? He had a cane. Limped a little. But he said he'd manage all right. He's a real hero. Gee, Dick's a lucky fella. Well, how do you mean, Penny? Well, his father's back home again. 
Gosh, I wish... Uncle Hank. Yes? When do you think... I know what you're going to ask me, Teddy. Will it be for much longer? Well, I hope not, youngster. You've been a brave boy for a long, long time. I've missed him, Uncle Hank. Well, of course you have. Me too. But nothing we can do about it, is there? Nope. Uncle Hank, Hmm? what's the trouble? Trouble? What do you mean, Penny? I don't know. You seem so funny. Not like you were all summer, but sort of solemn. Are you mad at me? Oh, heavens, no. (laughs) Whatever gave you that idea, boy? Now you get along with you now, before I decide to exercise a little discipline now. I'm going. (laughs) Hurry up with your chores, Uncle Hank. I'm hungry. That night, there was much animated conversation. Penny's first day at school provided more than enough after-supper talk until bedtime came along. And Hank was careful to listen with more than his usual attentiveness, careful to laugh and be gay when the occasion demanded. For Penny was aptly named, bright, alert, and the very echo of Hank's own moods. He had sensed the older man's preoccupation that afternoon in spite of his own excited gaiety. Later, after Penny had said his prayers and then tucked in bed, old Hank had sat up far past his bedtime, rocking gently in the old cherry wood rocker, drawing on a never more than half-lit pipe, thinking, always thinking. My duty towards God and towards my neighbor. To love him as myself, and to do to all men as I would they should do unto me. I wonder if I've done my duty, James, to you, my neighbor. I guess you're James and Ellen Evans, huh? Well, I'm your neighbor, Hank Morton. Oh, we're glad to meet you, sir. Yes. Here, now. None of that sure stuff. We're going to be neighbors, not distant acquaintances. Oh, well, sorry. I I didn't mean to. You see, Hank, we're newlyweds. I know you are. And I don't aim to buddy it, neither. But I just had to say hello and welcome you to our hills. I'm a bachelor myself, but if there's anything you need or want, just ask me. I've lived all my life here, and I love it. And I want you folks to love your new home as much as I do. That's all. Thank you, Hank. I know we shall. And you're going to be our very first friend. Yes, sir. Or, I mean, uh, Hank. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and thanks for greeting us like this. It's, oh, it's swell. But, Hank, darling, you shouldn't have done that. Uh, why not? You've been keeping me in butter and eggs for weeks. What's a few logs of wood? A back-breaking chore. Oh, not for me. That's how I keep limber these days. When the time comes that I can't split a cord of wood, <laughs> well, I'll know that I'm done for. Oh, you're a dear. 
Tell you what, first fire we make, you're going to share it with us. <laughs> uh, I hoped you'd say that, Ellen. I was aiming for an invitation, <laughs> and I'm going to accept. Oh, well, that is if you're sure James would be too jealous. <laughs> oh, Hank, <laughs> you're wonderful. <laughs> Looks like this is the real thing, Hank. Well, she's being a real fighter, James. I... I'd better see if I can't get a hold of Dr. Moss. Well, you'll do nothing to the sort. The wires are down in the count of the storm. I've already tried to reach up my phone. Oh. Well, then I'll have to go No. On. You'll stay here with Ellen. She needs you. I'll go into town and bring him out with me. But the roads are icy, Hank, and, and there may be drifts, but with all this wind... I and... know my way into town and out backwards, James. Now, you keep Ellen warm. Get some water on the boil. And I'll be back with Doc just as soon as possible. I... I don't know what to say, Hank, or how to thank well, you. don't thank me yet. Just hope I get back in time. But, James. Yeah? Tell Ellen I love her, too. Tell her to keep her chin up. Thank God. In time. James, is it a boy or, or, or... It's all over. A boy. Here, sit down. You look as though you, you needed a doctor. A boy, huh? It's all over. A boy. An elephant. <laughs> James, is she all right? Is Ellen all right? It's all over for Ellen. She's dead. Why, God? Tell me why. Slowly, Hank Morton tapped out his pipe, rose from the rocker, turned out the light, and carefully made his way to bed. He shivered as he quickly undressed in the chill autumn night. It was getting old, he reflected. If only he could stop thinking about James and Ellen, gone so soon, long before her time, and Penny, but mostly about James, his neighbor. Oh, sure, I could have feel it, of course, Hank, but I couldn't do that, not and stay honest with myself. Well, I know how you feel, yes. I wish I was a little younger, that's all. Oh, you did your share in the last scrap. Now, it's my turn now, and I don't mean to skip it. Well, you have to be true to yourself, James. If you believe in what you're going to do, go ahead and do it. But what about Penny? Well, if you were any older, I'd fight to stay home and bring him up right. But, well, he's just a kid, and maybe this won't mean too much heartache now. Well, Penny's got a lot of spring and bouts. Uh, don't you worry about him, James. Besides, I, uh, I wanted to talk to you about that, Hank. That, uh, it doesn't seem right that you should be burdening, burdening yourself with bringing up a youngster while I'm in service. Oh, don't seem right, eh? And who could do it any better? Oh, whoa, no, I didn't mean Well, that. who's been teaching them to fish and heist the sail and the sound? Who's been giving them little odds and ends of chores so that he can make himself useful around the place, eh? Huh? Oh, well, I'm sorry, Hank, I'm not ungrateful, 
Well, I only wanted you to know you that You said I... that boy to any relatives, and I'll... I'll... Uh... Oh, heck. I don't know what I'll do. Besides, maybe I'm being presumptuous, James. But I think Ellen would want him to grow up here, right at home, where he first saw daylight. Ah, you've made me very happy, Hank. I know what Ellen would have wanted. Now that I know you want it that way, too, that's how it'll be. Thank God for you, neighbor. The dawn came all too soon. Carrying in its wake a tingling scent of upstate mountaintops and a hint of frosts to come. Both Penny and Hank woke early, did their chores briskly, and sat down to a steaming hot New England breakfast. Mmm, swell elegant. Yeah. Well, a grown body needs plenty of food. It's got to be good food, or else you wouldn't have no use for it, huh? You're growing too, Uncle Hank, aren't you? <laughs> well, I reckon so, Penny. Yeah, just like an old oak tree. <laughs> an oak tree? <laughs> sure. Or a maple or elm. Well, any kind of tree you want, Nate. Oh, you're kidding, Uncle oh, Hank. Oh, no, sir. Bob, I'm not. No. How does it feel to be as old as you are? <laughs> Do you really think I'm old? Well, not exactly. But you're lots older than I am. Yeah, 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 I reckon I am, I reckon, yeah. Well, but that don't make us any less friends, does it? No, sirree. Next to my daddy, you're the only person I really like. But tell me, how does it feel to be, well, you know? Well, like I told you, young like a tree must feel. Yeah, when you're young, like you, you feel like a sapling. Your roots ain't so long, they don't go so deep into the soil. But they're deep enough so as you can get nourishment, all the things you need for living out of the soil. And you bend in the wind. And if you're not too careful, the hot sun or the cold frost will blight you. It'll make you wither away before your time. Yeah. That's how you feel when you're in the spring of life. Then comes summer. Your leaves fill out and they become a handsome green. Ah. A tree in summertime is something like your daddy James. A grown man. Gosh, Uncle Hank. I never thought... Gee. Yeah. Then comes autumn, Penny. Your roots are firm and deep, bedded and twisted in the earth. You still get life and nourishment, but the time comes when life is drained out of your veins. Sun grows cooler. The winds are chill. And even though your bark is thick and hard, you feel the change. But trees are pretty in autumn. Oh, yeah. You're right, Penny. There is a beauty that comes with age. Sort of a last-ditch fight that you put up before you know that old winter will get you. Makes a swell show for a while. And then, 
bed there. Yes, Uncle Hank? Then comes winter. Go on. Tell me what it feels like. <laughs> no, no. I couldn't if I wanted to. <laughs> I'm not that old. Besides, you're going to have to step brisk pace if you're intended to get to school before that old school bell rings. <laughs> Go on out. Along with it. Go on. The sun was rising higher in the heavens. Outside was peace, contentment, and rich fulfillment in harvest. But inside the house, it was much darker. Penny had gone to school. Old Hank sat quietly at the breakfast table, thinking again. His gnarled fingers reached into one of the pockets of the tattered old vest, which he seldom went without. They clutched a crumpled piece of paper, well read, only a few days old, but so well memorized he could almost hear the words coming from James' lips. Old neighbor, I don't know how to tell you this in words. All the gratitude I've stored up for years just won't seem to flow into sentences and grammatical construction. I wish I could express all the warm things I feel in my heart for you and what you've done for Penny and me. But I can't. And that brings me to a rather painful subject, Hank. A story of me. A story that has an ending. You see, old friend... I've been banged up a bit, and I won't be coming home. The medics don't give me much longer, a week or so, that's all. Nothing I can do about it. I fought, I'm still fighting. But some things must take their course, just like the rivers which end up in the sea. No matter how their course has been changed. They make their way to their everlasting home. It's my turn now. Promise me you'll tell Penny when the telegram comes. Maybe I've done you wrong by telling you this now, but somehow I feel that you should know first. We'll give you a chance to think over what and how to tell the youngster. Goodbye, Hank. I'll leave you with many burdens, more than you deserve to be laid with. Maybe they be light for your shoulders, your loving friend and neighbor, James. Huh? Oh, oh. Hello, Elmer. Uh, morning, Hank. Yeah, fine day. Fine out of day, huh? Yep, couldn't be better. Oh, yeah. Hank, I, I've got a... Uh, got a wire for me? Afraid I have. Came ringing out from town. So it's come at last. Too soon. Ain't you going to open it? Huh? Uh... Oh, well, no, Elmer. Not, not yet a while, no. 
I know what it says. I'm sorry. Awful sorry, Hank. Yeah, me too. James was a fine man. Yeah. You ain't gonna tell the youngster for a while, are you? Not tell Penny? He's pretty young. Yeah, you wouldn't want to hurt him more than necessary. Well, you're wrong about that. I am gonna tell him. But Hank, it ain't. It wouldn't be fair not to. Neither to James nor to Penny. You think it's wise, Hank? It's the only thing to do, Albert. Thing is, well, how to do it? You're awful solemn again, Uncle Hank. Oh, am I, Penny? Yeah. Please, I wish there was something I could do to make you cheer up. Oh, there now, I'm sorry, youngin. It's the coming of winter, I guess. Hey, that reminds me, too. Uh, never did finish that story of mine about growing old like a tree, did I? Nope. Well, I guess I will now. Yeah. You see, Penny, there are times when my story don't hold good. You see, sometimes a man has more than one job to do here on Earth. Maybe two big jobs. He finishes one. And God says, that's enough. The man's done his share. Maybe the other job was left undone. But there's always someone else to tend to it as part of his old job. Sometimes, too, the forest gets well, overcrowded. Some trees die so that others can reach the light. Grow, live. That's the thing about winter, Penny. Sometimes it comes in a man's pride. I understand. Do you, boy? Are you sure? Yes, Uncle Hank. A telegram came today. What? Where from? Who sent it? Here you go. I have it open. Maybe you'd better do it. All right. The War Department regrets. Oh, Uncle Hank, it's Daddy, James. He's gone. Yes, yes, yes. You see, it's like I was telling you. Sometimes a man's job is done in his prime. Sometimes, when he goes. A little more light and sun shines on those of us left behind. A little more life for us. For a moment, for a moment, nothing more was said. Then Penny stood up, walked to the door, and went out into the autumn night. Old Hank made as if to follow him, and then thought better of it. A young man's grief is a solitary thing. There'd be time to share it, and to forget it. Hank busied himself about the house, tidying up the supper dishes, putting another log or two on the cheerful fire. He knew Penny would be all right. And now, for the first time in many months, he felt younger. 
His new burdens had overthrown the nagging load of the autumn of old age. Hank looked up at the autumn sky. Then he went inside, closed the door, and sat by the fire, waiting for Penny. You have heard Escape from Autumn, written by Alan M. Fishburne and directed by Norman Felton. The National Broadcasting Company has presented another story of Escape. Cliff Subir was heard as Hank, Leonard Smith as Penny, Ralph Camargo played James. Your narrator is Cleve Kirby. And same station, NBC will bring you Escape from Royalty. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's stories. The first story really gutted me, and it's from a series I'd never, ever had the chance to explore till now. The realization of the letter, the impact it had on the boy, and the uncle's somber tone and demeanor, obvious enough for the boy to pick up on. It's writing like this that I really enjoy in an OTR. Our crime classic, as always, The Smithy of Evil Tale, was also a great story that I hope you all enjoyed. The first one was really hard to fix up, but we got there in the end, and I think it was really worth it. I'm using a new technique called Spectral Repair, which goes in there and finds all the gaps and the bips and the bops, and actually fills them with artificial intelligence calculations, or mathematics, on what the AI thinks the audio should sound like, with great results. You're hearing it almost as if it was recorded live. Back, I don't know, 80 years ago. Pretty damn amazing. Listeners, thank you for listening. I'll catch you next week Monday for something different. And for those kind enough to support me, here are my thank yous to yous. To my epic tier supporter, my old knight tea titan, you legend you, Matto Star. Thank you, mate, for your ongoing and god tier support. This podcast is able to easily cover costs now. And for that, I'm ever ever grateful. I was able to revamp my website, correct all the issues that faced with images not regenerating, and actually upload a new set of audio files that would otherwise be left in a vault somewhere else. Thank you immensely for your amazing self, and I hope your week just goes wonderfully, Star. Lots of love your way, buddy. And my legendary white teague warlord, the epic, the amazing, Lazookasaurus Rex, thank you, mate for your amazing contribution to the show, and you actually help cover the monthly cost of my mid-journey AI art costs, which is no small fee. Thank you immensely for your support, because of you, I'm able to actually create art for all my patrons and continue to generate content every couple of days. Thank you, Leza, for being your amazing self and contributing to the art space. For those of you wondering what mid-journey is, it's essentially artificial intelligence that makes art, and I mean some really funky art. Have you ever seen a pirate ship made of cheese? A horse made of lightning? Two cats splitting the world apart? Well, now you can. Thanks to my supporters, it's all possible. And my supporters are the only peeps that get a chance to put in their prompt or suggestion on what the next art piece could look like. Now, for my old grey enforcers, the peeps that put a pep in my step, I'm lucky to have. Chad Warren, Joss Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Rapelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Solstra, and Paige Kramer. 
thank you all for being amazing and showing you care. Now write your story, share your tale. Make it creepy or something silly about a snail. But remember that little tremor that crawls up your spine. Or the tingle that makes you smile from a perfect plotline. That's the magical storytelling like tea. It's divine. You took the time to listen to me and you think that it was your treat. But I thank you, my friends, for the listen. And as always, till next we meet. Mwah. Have a great week, guys and gals. And catch you then.